let's start with prayer. Father, we trust you. We know your word is true. We know your word is good. We know you are good. You command us to obey it. So show us that, and then tell us how. Just pray that our lives would be in exaltation and expression of who Jesus is, and that we would not just think about his sacrifice for us, but live it out and show the world who Jesus is through our own obedience. I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. So my children, first of all, my children don't like when I start any sentence in front of other people with my children, <laughs> but when my children obey, sometimes they'll say, hey, dad, since we obeyed, you should take us to ice cream or to Dairy Queen. And this is my response to my kids when they ask for a reward for obedience. I tell them, obedience is not an exception. Obedience is expected. And then I tell them, but I love ice cream, so yeah, let's go. <laughs> so Actually, they're like, no, you don't. You say no all the time. Yeah. But either way, Christians, I think, you know, we, we sometimes like, when we have a good day, when we like really obeyed God, I think sometimes like, man, you know, I really obeyed God today. I feel good about today. I feel like I was faithful to God. That's a good thing. And, you know, God's like, that's, I expect that daily, right? And that's a, that's a looming reality that hangs over us. And it's not meant to be looming or hanging over us. It's meant to be, our obedience is meant to be an expression of our relationship with Jesus. So, uh, he doesn't just leave us on our own to be obedient. He's not just like, hey, I'm your God. Do what I say. Oh, and by the way, the Bible also says you're going to be terrible at it. But do it anyways. So this whole idea of God commanding us to obey him, what, is, what does it mean? Why does he command it? And why do we have to obey him? And how do we do it? So today is the second sermon in our series on a healthy church. And last week's sermon was, A Healthy Church Explores Christ. And there's a reason why that was the first sermon of the series. It was important to address that topic first because it is paramount that Jesus is our priority. That he alone is the center of our affections and our desires, our passions, our knowledge, our wisdom, and our pursuit. If we don't first grasp the significance of the priority of Jesus in the life of a believer, then today's message, a healthy church obeys God's word, will not connect. And it will not have the intended impact because a church cannot obey God's word if Jesus is not the target. So as you'll see today, a healthy church that obeys God's word obeys God's word because of their love and affection for Jesus. So, now when I use the phrase, obey God, I mean, and will always mean, and forever mean, obey God's word. So to obey God is equal to obeying God's word because God's word is the only means of communication that he has chosen to be 
to, to put or place that he's chosen to put his commands. So the only way to obey God is to obey his word. Okay? We see this in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in the Old Testament, Old Covenant, God communicated his will and his word through the prophets. The prophets would therefore prophesy. That's what I'm doing today, prophesying. Prophesying is not just telling the future. Prophesying is saying what God says. And so the prophets would say what God said, and they'd go to the Israelites and, or to whatever nation and say, Thus saith the Lord. And they'd speak on God's behalf. Well, now we don't need prophets because verse 2. But in these last days, that's post-Christ, anytime between Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the grave and ascending to heaven from then until he comes back is considered the last days. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's Jesus. And what do we know about Jesus? John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the what? Word. word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word. So now God speaks to us through his son, and we have the word of God, which tells us about the son. This is God's chosen means of communication. So my objective today is to convince you to obey God. Right? And I don't think anyone in this room came in thinking, I don't have to obey God, but I'm going to go to church. Like Those ideas don't typically blend very well. Um, so I would imagine that most of you already agree and believe, yeah, we're supposed to obey God, and we obey God through his word. And God's word is his primary and only form of communication with us. And the spirit works through the word. So I still want to show that to you in the text and then show you how. So I have two big ideas today, okay? First, I'm going to show you that God's word tells us to obey it so that you at least have some biblical footing for obedience. And then second, the second big idea is I'm going to show you how God's word tells us how to obey. And that's, I think, where the, the application of obedience really starts to make sense. And the Bible comes to life in that sense. So, big idea number one. God commands obedience. So we're in John 14, 15. If you're not there, go there. Or you can follow along up here. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is speaking with authority here. I mean, he's saying, you will keep my commandments. A stranger walks up to you and says, do what I say. You're going to be like, dude, I don't know you. You have no authority in my life. You can't tell me what to do. I'm not going to do what you say just because you said it. But when Jesus says, do what I say, we do what he says. Why? Because of authority. He's expressing his authority here. Why does Jesus have the authority? He has authority here because he is the word. So he can command to be obeyed. Revelation 19.13. The name by which he is called is the word of God. So Jesus is saying, me and the word, same thing. And so we obey Jesus because just like the word, Jesus has ultimate authority as God. And Jesus is telling us, or the Bible is telling us, Jesus is telling us, I'm the ultimate authority, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is the word. The word is the ultimate authority. That's why we obey. And we know that God's word is authoritative in our life because it is the product of God himself. 
not a makeup of some man-made books written by just a bunch of dudes who just made stuff up. And if they did just make stuff up, wow, that's astronomically impossible. Mathematically impossible that over a span of 3,000 years, 40 different authors wrote different things in different contexts at different points in history without having each other's letters to compare and wrote the same thing with no contradictions. That's impossible. So this is from God, and we see this in the text, 2 Peter 1.21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So what we see there is that the word of God, this Bible, is God's word. Men wrote it, but they were carried along, according to Peter, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote or spoke the prophecies of God. So this is God's authoritative word, not man's. And not only that, but this word, which, is, which Paul says to Timothy, is breathed out by God, has an, an intended impact, an intended result, which is that you would be equipped for every good work. That's obedience. That is one of the intended purposes of this book, so you would obey. So we not only obey God's word because it's authoritative and it's his voice on paper, but also because it's true. Now, I put because it's true last, because we don't just believe the Bible because it works, right? Like there are preachers who will say, well, the Bible works, so even if it's not God's word and it's just a bunch of man-made stuff, at least it works, I'll just run with it. That's not biblical. So to even say that is to immediately reject the book itself. So we don't just hang on, well, the Bible works, or you know, it looks true to me, and that's why I follow it. That's not why we follow it. We follow it, we believe it, because it's God's word, and it's an authoritative word. And because it's God's word, and God is true and right and can do no wrong and is perfect and righteous, because of that, his word is true. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. Psalm 119, 160. The sum of your word is truth. This book is true. So we obey God's word because God is our authority and he has chosen scripture as the means to communicate his truth to us. And therefore, the Bible has ultimate and supreme authority in our lives. Now, when Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Kind of sounds like an ultimatum, right? You better keep my commandments or else. It sounds, I mean, just imagine like if your spouse said to you, do this or that, or you don't love me. You'd be like, dude, don't put that ultimatum on me. Like, don't make me try to prove my love to you, because if I do it now, it's forced. It's not genuine. It's not natural. That's not love. That's manipulation. The difference is that Jesus is not forcing love here. He's expressing the reality of how loving him will produce obedience in your life. If you love your spouse, if you genuinely love your spouse, it will show. And your spouse is never going to say to you, why don't you love me? They'll see it. They won't have to ask. They know. 
Instead of saying, why don't you love me? They'll look at you and go, oh, you love me, right? Because it'll be so obvious and evident and they won't have to give you an ultimatum. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. If you love me, it will be evident through your obedience. Well, what does that tell us? That if we're not obedient, what are we not doing? Loving our Lord and Savior, Jesus. So that's why we must obey God's word. Because it is from God, it is authoritative, and it is true. And we get obedience through loving Christ, which I'll show you in a minute. But what is my motivation for obeying God's word? Because ultimately, the answer to that question, what is my motivation to obey God's word, is because God says so. That, that is a true answer. Because he says to obey it, that's your motivation. But where does that come from? That has to come from somewhere. People who don't believe in God don't care that God's word says to obey it. What do we have that they don't? Love for Jesus. So there are, because we love Jesus, we love God's word, and we obey it. We want to obey it. So I want to give you some motivations, two, two motivations that will help you understand why we're obeying God's word. What's in it? For God, and what's in it for me? So motivation number one is God's glory. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says, Has the Lord as great a delight? Now that word delight is glory. If God loves something, if God delights in something, that thing glorifies him. So that is God being glorified. Has the Lord as great a delight or glory in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. That's a question. It's a rhetorical question. And the retort to the question is this. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. So our motivation to obey God is to magnify God's glory, to give our Lord the pleasure in us that he deserves. Motivation number two for obeying God's word. Our blessing. When we obey God's word, we are blessed. Now, Luke eleven twenty eight tells us this very plainly. He says, blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. That means do it, obey it, hold it in their heart, right? And if it's in your heart, it's going to come out of you. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus, or yeah, 12, 34, 36, I don't remember. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's in you is going to come out. If you hold the word of God in your heart, it's going to come out of you. You're going to obey. So, blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. Here's the thing. We really, as Christians, need to be careful when we start talking about blessings. Because there is a major misconception about what a blessing is and how we get it. It is commonly believed in this world... And here's the thing that rubs me the wrong way. It is very common in the Christian culture, in the Christian world, amongst the churches, that a blessing is like karma. You do good, you get a gift. You obey, dad buys you ice cream. Right? So, like, we have kind of a karma mentality about God. Like, if I do good, I get a good thing. Now, the reality is, there is truth in that, absolutely. So I'm not saying that when we do good, we don't get good, because that happens. And I teach my children that. 
When my, if my children are disobedient, I tell them, listen, I am going to pour blessings on you. And if you continue to disobey me, I will start removing blessings so you can feel the angst and the pain and the tension of your sin. And instead of the blessing, I'm going to add other things that make you aware of your sin, right? But as you obey, I bless to encourage that obedience. And God operates that way also in a sense. But what we need to kind of correct in our thinking is what is a blessing? Because obedience will always produce blessing. But when we think of karma, it's if I do good, I get something that I call good. Well, what's good? And what is a blessing? Because if you ask most Christians, what is a blessing? They will tell you, God gave me what I asked for or gave me something that I wanted. He provided a new car or he gave me this new job that I wanted or he blessed us with a financial gift or he healed me from an illness or I escaped some injustice. Why? Because I obeyed. But what about the unbeliever who does not obey God, yet gets many of the same gifts from God? Are, they're not obeying God, and they're still getting those good blessings. They still get money. They still have food. They get rain for their crops. They get sunshine to enjoy. They have jobs and cars, too. They heal from illnesses. What's the difference? The difference is... Our blessings hurt. That's the difference. Let me explain. The apostles have a much different perspective on what a blessing is. Yes, all of those blessings that I just mentioned in life are from God, right? James says every good and perfect gift comes from above. Amen? Everything good that you get, that bonus check or that ch your child brings home an A in, in a class or you know your favorite team wins the this, this sporting event, whatever it is, and you think it's a blessing, right? That's from God. It's for you. It's for good. It's a blessing. But the apostles see something different. Why don't you think about it like this? If something happened to you, and that thing that happened to you produced in you the righteousness of Jesus. Would you call that thing a blessing? I would. Absolutely. <laughs> if something makes me more like Jesus, I know that that's a blessing from God. Because I know God's agenda is to make me more like Christ. So if something happens to me, and that thing that happens to me makes me like Christ, it makes the righteousness of Jesus in me then that thing was a blessing. And if that's true, then we need to change our idea of a blessing. Because look at Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, God says that he disciplines his son whom he loves. And then in Hebrews 12, 11, this is what he says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, when something painful happens to us, most Christians don't go, oh, it's a blessing from God. They go, why, God, have you cursed me? They don't think of it as a blessing. They think of it as a curse. And what he says here is, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it, it being referring to the discipline, yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. So, if that thing that produces righteousness in me is a blessing, what God just told us in Hebrews 
is that discipline is a blessing because it produces the righteousness of Christ in me. And what we also know is discipline hurts. So we always just think a blessing is like this. Oh, I got what I needed and I'm happy and I got everything and, and there's no problems and no concerns in my life. You see, we think of a blessing as something that makes our life easier. But discipline is a blessing and discipline can hurt. I mean, a blessing can oftentimes be good even though it's painful. Look at Acts 5, 40 through 41. This is the apostles. They were preaching the gospel in the synagogues. The council found out. The council grabbed the apostles, brought them in, and this is what happens. Verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council <laughs> rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So the apostles considered their beating as an honor because it was for Jesus. That is the apostles recognizing that to honor Christ is a blessing to them, even though it was them being physically beaten for preaching the gospel. Meaning suffering is a blessing, which makes sense when you read James, and James says what? Consider it joy when you meet various trials. Don't consider it a curse. Don't consider it, oh God, why is this happening to me? Consider it God is destroying your sin. God is using you. God is taking you and moving you from here to here. He's advancing your righteousness. He's chiseling away at the, at the sinful nature and making you more like Christ. And that is going to hurt. If God's going to chisel your heart, that's going to hurt. So we got to rearrange the way we think of blessings. Blessings are not just the things that make life easier. Blessings, the best blessings, are the ones that make us righteous. And the best way to make us righteous is suffering. The most healthy and vibrant and growing churches in the entire world are the most persecuted churches. Because there's no better way to weed out lame, weak, and sorry Christians than some good old-fashioned persecution. <laughs> so, I'm not suggesting we start asking for it, okay? Because I, I don't think we should ask for it. What we should do is obey God. And if we do, the suffering will come. So, it is better to suffer to become righteous and to suffer because you did something wrong, right? So Peter says that, 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will, meaning it is God's will, it can be God's sovereign will that you suffer for doing a good thing, for obeying, that your obedience will create your suffering. That's better than, the end of verse 17, than suffering for doing evil. So, even, obedience, even if obedience produces suffering, it is still good and it is still a blessing. And the fruit of that blessing will be the righteousness, in Christ, righteousness of Christ in us. And that alone should motivate us to obey God's word. So, here's a promise. 
Here's the command. Obey God's word. Here's the promise. You're going to suffer for it. Here's the result. The righteousness of Christ in you. And here's what other Christians do. Obey God's word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to suffer for it. Nope. I'm going to skip that. Okay. Obey God's word. Oh, God's word's going to make me suffer. I'm going to create a new theology. God, give me everything I need. Just skip that. And what do they miss? Because it took the wrong route. They miss the righteousness of Christ. And this is why the Bible is filled with comments about suffering. Filled. This is why Paul says in Romans 8, 17, you can be an heir with Christ, sure, provided you suffer with him in order that you may be glorified with him. It's like, oh, worst news ever. But here's the highlight. Verse 18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's the promise. That the suffering is going to produce the righteousness of Christ in you. And I'm just telling you this now so that when, when we as a church expect obedience from you and you expect obedience from me and we expect obedience from each other, that what we see in our brothers and sisters in Christ will be suffering. So my question is, why aren't we suffering more? What are we not doing? Now, I'm not saying that 100% of the time your obedience will produce suffering because that's not necessarily true either. But what I, what I am saying is we should expect to see suffering in this church. That should be an expectation. As we obey God and we become more like Christ, what did Christ do? Suffered over and over and over again as an example for us. And so as we grow as a church, and when I say grow, I mean each of you individually, healthy, growing in health to become like Christ, as you become more like Jesus... Through obedience, you should start suffering. So, and I say that to all of us, so that when people start suffering, we don't do what Job's friends did, which is, well, what did you do wrong? We go, this is God's work. Did you suffer for doing good or for doing evil? I suffered because I was obedient. I did good. But then, this is good. Now we rejoice. Yeah, but I'm hurting. But we rejoice. We cry with you. We weep with those who weep, and we rejoice with those who rejoice. So we're going to cry with you, but we're going to celebrate the righteousness of God that he is bringing to life in you through the suffering. And I see so many churches and Christians who are like, blessings are just these good things that make life just a cakewalk. And I'm like, that is not glorious. Look at Jesus. You know what would have been easy? Skip the cross. When Satan tempts him, he could have been like, you know what? Satan's like, you could have all these kingdoms. And Jesus is like, you could be like, fine, I'll take them. Just skip the cross. That was Satan's entire agenda for Jesus. That's the temptation in the wilderness, was to skip the cross. To skip the means by which Jesus would be most glorified, that God would be most glorified, that the church would be created and you would be saved, and none of it happens if he doesn't suffer. And he's our example. So, a healthy church obeys God's word. Another way to say it is a healthy church will suffer. And a healthy church will become more like Christ through that suffering. So that's why we obey God's word. How do we obey God's word? Big idea number two. How to obey God's word. So we have Jesus' statement in John 14, 15. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. So Jesus gives us this truth that loving him will equal obedience. But how does loving him translate into obedience in my life? Jesus answers that question in the following two verses, verses 16 through 17. So I'm just going to read 15 through 17 together as a, as a text. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. And he dwells with you and will be in you. So we have this command to love Jesus and obey him. And then he jumps into, and I'm going to give you the spirit. So what's the connection? That connection answers our question, how do I obey God's word? The answer is the Holy Spirit. That's how you obey God's word. Now there's a, seriously, there are, I don't want to say million. There's a lot of other ways to answer that. How do I obey God's word? There's a lot of practical answers. Right? How do I obey God's word? Um, read it so you know what it says. Right? That's a good place to start. How are you going to obey it if you don't read it? But I want to get to the root of the issue. I want to get to the heart of the obedience. It's not just pick up your Bible and do what it says mechanically and make a checklist of every command of the Bible. Make sure you do them all every day. That's not obedience. That's legalism. So I want to get to the heart. And the heart of obedience is the Holy Spirit. That's how you obey God. That's how you understand God's word and obey God's word. So I'm going to jump to the conclusion of this sermon, okay? I'm going to give you the answer right now. Here's the end of the sermon. If you love Jesus, you'll obey God's word. The more you love Jesus, the more of the spirit is poured into you. And the more spirit-filled you are, the more you'll obey by the power of the spirit. So if you want to obey God's word, increase your love and affection for Jesus, that's the conclusion. That's the conclusion of the sermon. You obey God's word by being filled with the Spirit. You get filled with the Spirit by loving Jesus. That's the answer. That's how. And now that you see that, the big picture, I'm going to step back in and show you how I got there because I think that's important. Jesus' promise here in John 14 is that those who love him have the Spirit of God dwelling in them, meaning... Being obedient isn't just trying to do good things. Just trying really hard to be really good all the time. That will never work. Because you, I'm sorry, we are not good. This isn't going to work. It's not just like, hey, I got saved. I got the Holy Spirit. Put it in my pocket. Now I do good things. It doesn't work that way. You're still bad. In God's eyes, you're righteous, perfect. You're in, he sees Christ when he sees, sees you in a white gown, righteous and glorified and holy and perfect in Christ. But today, in this flesh, right now, we're still, this flesh, this sinful flesh, we still do evil. We're still not good. Our sinful nature is not good, so we need the Spirit. If you don't believe me that we're not good, let me show you that we're not good. Romans 3, 10 through 12. Listen to the, the gravity and the all-inclusiveness of this text. No one is righteous. No. Because if you're like, well, I mean, Abraham, no. Well, I mean, Moses, no. Paul, no. Paul even said, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I ought to do. I don't know. 
Like that was, you know, every guy in the Bible, you look at Hebrews 11, it's the it's story of all these men of faith, these great examples, and you could find sin in every one of their lives. No one is good. No one is righteous. And if you're like, well, what about, no, Paul says, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. Zero percent of humanity seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Maybe just one. Not even one. I just love that text. It's just like canceling any opportunities of anybody being good. That is our condition without Jesus. But in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, having the Holy Spirit, we receive Christ and thus receive his righteousness and then go from no good to the ability to perform good, to do what is right, to seek God, to be holy and righteous, to obey God's word. Meaning, on our own, we can do no good. So we need help, right? Can't do good on my own. I'm not good. That's pretty clear. I need help. And that's exactly what Jesus promises in John 14, 16. And he says, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. So now, our ability to obey God is only possible in the Holy Spirit. But we still need to clarify one thing. And this is really important when we think about because I think maybe there are some misconceptions about what it means to be obedient and have the Holy Spirit. I'm saved, I got the Spirit, and now I can obey. What does it really mean on a, on a, at like the root level, ground level? My son plays this video game where you play this character who just like runs around this map on this world and shoots things. But in the game, you can upgrade your player, right? You can upgrade your player by buying these packages. And so he's always coming, Dad, can I buy this new package? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so, so he wants to buy all these packages. What these packages do is they upgrade your player. They upgrade your avatar, right? Um, and, and then when you get these packages, when you purchase them, they make that player that you're playing on the screen instantaneously and automatically better. I'll give you an example. Like you can buy a weapons package, which automatically upgrades the dude's weapons and, and is more effective shooting things, I guess. Uh, or you buy like an armor package and he's automatically harder to kill, right? So once the purchase is applied, your player, your avatar instantaneously becomes better. You don't have to work any harder to apply those changes. You yourself, the human being with the control in your hand, you don't have to get better for, those, for, your, for your avatar to be better. It just happens without any advancement on your own, of your own skill in the game. That is, listen, that is not how the Holy Spirit works. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. When my son buys those packages and applies them to his player, he himself... My son has not instantaneously gotten more skilled at the game. He didn't just get better. His player, his avatar is better because of the applied upgrades, but he himself has not improved in his skills. Now that we have the Holy Spirit, we can't just treat him like a package upgrade. You don't receive the Spirit and then just go back to the same old way of doing things. I haven't actually gotten any better myself. I'm just saved now, and I, I still cannot just do good on my own. I can't just have the Holy Spirit, like, 
stick them in my pocket, and then I'm just instantaneously better. You don't just get the spirit and you instantaneously upgrade at being good now. And assume that now that I have the spirit, all of my same old efforts will suddenly produce righteousness because you're still trying to perform holiness on your own. So I'm making that point because even with the Holy Spirit, though you are instantaneously with the Holy Spirit, perfect and righteous and holy in God's eyes because of Jesus, today you are still not good at being good. So then how can we be good? Like, what is the point of having the Spirit help us if having Him doesn't make me better? I'm not saying that having Him doesn't make us good. I'm saying that we are not any better at being good just because we have Him. And what I mean is, and what I'm saying is, He is good. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is good. And the only way we can do good, the only way you can obey, is if the Spirit is doing the work, not you. On a practical level, when the Spirit does good work through you, it feels to you like good work. And you are mechanically acting out the good actions. But it's His work. In your experience, it feels like you're the one performing it, but it's the Spirit working through you, and I believe that because that's what the Bible says, and I'll show you. Ezekiel 36, 27. God makes a promise in the Old Testament about his new covenant, Christ. He says, I will put my Spirit within you. That's every believer in Jesus. I will put my Spirit within you. I'm not going to ask you if I can put my Spirit within you. I'm going to put my Spirit within you. And then... My spirit will cause, not suggest, not develop over time, not maybe one day get you there. The spirit of God in you will cause, not ask you to do it for him or suggest, hey, now that you have me, the spirit of God, you should try doing good things now. Oh yeah, I got the spirit of God. Now I can start trying to be better because I couldn't be better before, but now that I have the spirit, I can be better. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the Spirit of God himself and alone will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. But this text is a promise that God makes for every Christian. That God not only puts the Holy Spirit in us, but that the Spirit is also the one and only person who is doing the good. It is the Spirit who does the good, not you. But you are the one acting out that good you are the one obeying. So that seems like a, a contradiction or like a conundrum, right? Like, it's not me, but I'm the one doing it, but the Spirit's doing it. When we obey, when you obey, it's not you, it's the Spirit. But why would God have the Spirit do the good through us instead of us just doing it now that we have the Spirit? Why aren't we doing it because we have the Spirit why is it that the Spirit is, is the only one doing the good through us? He's manifesting his good out of us. Why is it that way? Ephesians 2.9. So no one may boast. If it's you, you get to pop your collar. Look what I did. 
Look how cool I am. I did this good thing or whatever. And, you know, you have a reason to boast. Like, it was you. You legitimately did the good thing. You have a reason to boast. And God's like, it's not you. It's my spirit. My spirit causes your obedience, not you. So think about it like this. Every single act you ever performed before you were saved was bad. Everyone. Every single one. You cannot do anything good, 0% good, without genuine faith in Jesus. If you donated all of your money to a homeless shelter or a children's organization, we would all say, well, that's a good man. That was a good thing. No, it wasn't. It was sin. Without faith in Jesus, that's still sin. According to the world standards, it's good. But that person is performing an action that we call good in a sinful nature that is not perfect. And God's standard of good is not our standard of good. Our standard of good is obey the law and do the morally right thing. And God's standard of good is perfection. And anyone who does anything without faith in Jesus is not perfect. And therefore can do no good. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Not improbable. Not most of the time impossible. So, because of that, listen to this. The very first act of genuine and authentic God-glorifying obedience that any human in history has ever performed, the very first one that any human has ever performed is this. They obeyed the gospel. No human ever has obeyed God without first obeying the gospel. You can do no good without Jesus. And your first act of obedience was to obey the gospel. And the only way you can obey God is once you've obeyed the gospel and you're saved, now you're in Christ, now you have faith, and now it's possible to please God your entire life because you have the Holy Spirit. Believing the gospel is the first act of obedience that any human will ever perform. And everything prior to obeying the gospel is garbage. That's what Paul says in Philippians 3. He calls it garbage, dung, it's a pile of manure. That's your work. That's your obedience. That's, that's an unsaved person giving all their money to a children's, children's organization. That's dumb in God's eyes because it's not from perfection. It doesn't come from the nature of Christ. It comes from a wicked and sinful nature. So the first thing we do ever in obedience to God is to repent and believe. To obey the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 and 1 Peter 4.17, they both say, obey the gospel. And then Acts 6.7, there are many priests who became obedient to the faith. This is a command. God commands the entire world to believe the gospel. Mark 1.15, Jesus steps on the stage and his ministry begins. And his first words, repent and believe. That's, that's how he starts his ministry. That's his entire agenda, to get people to repent and believe. So it's the first thing that anybody does is to obey the gospel. But this is all coming to a point, okay? Obeying the gospel is not done on your own. It can't. You can't obey the gospel on your own. Why? Because of Romans 10, I'm sorry, Romans 3, 10 through 12. 
right? I just read, no one seeks God. No, not one. Well, how did I accept Jesus unless I was seeking God? No one seeks God. Yeah, but I, no, not even one, right? Like, that's why it's so emphasized there, because Ephesians 2, 1, you are dead in your sins and in your trespasses following the ways of this world, just like everybody else. So let me ask you a question. How does someone who's dead, not drowning, not dying, not on their deathbed, not struggling to survive, like, oh, I'm dying in my sin, but I really just want you, I'm just reaching for God and I'm, I'm just dying. That's not what he says. He says, dead, spiritually unconscious. There's no good in you. Zero percent. How does that spiritually dead person choose God? if no one chooses God in their dead nature and their sinful nature. How? They can't. You can't. So how then is my first act of obedience to obey the gospel? If I'm dead in my sins and I can't seek God in my sinful nature. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does the work. We need the Spirit before we believe. Since belief is obedience and we can't obey without the Spirit, we can't obey, it's impossible to obey God without faith. You can't have faith if you're dead. You can't choose God. You can't choose Christ. You can't choose the gospel. You can't choose faith if you're dead. I've never in my life seen a dead person wake themselves up from death and say, oh, I was just trying it out. Like, that's not a reality. And it's less, it's even, I'm sorry, it's even more of a reality in a spiritual sense than it is in a physical sense. I'd be more surprised if someone spiritually woke themselves to life than if I saw someone physically raise themselves to life. And even think about the physical raising of people in the Bible. Who does the raising? God's people. Right? And... And so, God's word shows us that this is true. That we have to have the Spirit first in order to believe or obey the gospel and believe. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Meaning, you can't say Jesus is Lord, meaning you're saved, because that's a reference in Scripture to being saved. Paul uses that all the time. That is like the go-to phrase for this is how you're saved, by confessing Jesus is Lord. So no one can be saved except in the Holy Spirit, meaning no one can be saved without first, without the Spirit first regenerating your heart. Now I bring all this up to make this point. If your salvation was dependent on the Spirit of God to regenerate your heart and cause you and give you the gift of faith, which is the means by which you believe, and then cause you to obey the gospel, then what makes us think that we can continue to obey God's word without the Spirit causing continued obedience? We need him just as much right now to create my obedience as I did when I was dead in my sins. 
My dependence on the Holy Spirit to be the obedience by which I live is just as real today as it is as it was when I got saved. Because without him, I'm just as dead as I was. So then, if that's all the Spirit's work, the Spirit's the one doing the obedience through us, he's manifesting obedience through us, he's the good, we're not good, then what is my role? Because honestly, this is kind of a depressing reality. Like, I'm just forever bad and the Holy Spirit's the good one. Yeah, honestly. But, <laughs> but there is a lot of joy in this. Number one, it takes, like I said before, it takes the boasting out. It takes the arrogance out. It deflates your own balloon, which is what we all need. Right? And it creates absolute and utter and total dependence on God. That's exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. God put us through a whole bunch of hard things. Why? To cause our dependence on him. So, what is then your role? What do I do? Here's what you do. If the Holy Spirit is the means by which you are obedient to God's word, then what do you need? More Holy Spirit. So your role is to be filled with the Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who does your obedience. He's the one causing obedience in you. And if that's true, then all I know is I'm not going to do obedience on my own. And if the Holy Spirit's the only one doing the obedience through me, then I need more of Him. And this is why we're commanded in Scripture to be filled with the Spirit. Because if you try to operate without the Spirit, you will sin every time. If a Christian committed adultery, and I ask you, do you think that that Christian was filled with the Spirit when they committed that adultery? We would all be like, of course not. Of course they weren't filled with the Spirit. If they were filled with the Spirit, they would have not done the adultery. You will never sin when the Spirit is causing obedience. And the only way for you to be obedient is to be in the Spirit and to be filled with the Spirit. So, the only question really left to answer then, how do I get filled with the Spirit? How do I stay filled or keep being filled? And we see Jesus as the best example. Jesus is the best example of what it means or how to get filled with the Spirit, or maintain being filled with the Spirit. Because what we learn from Jesus in Mark chapter 5 is that when we work, when we obey God's word, the Spirit pours out of us. Okay, I've shared this with you guys before. Jesus is surrounded by massive crowds, right? And there's people all around him just begging, Jesus, heal me, heal my son, heal my do this and do that. And they're just, he's this miracle worker. Everyone's found him. There's a woman on the ground. She reaches out and she touches his heel. And Jesus says, Stop! Who just touched me? And then Mark tells us why Jesus said that. He says, Jesus asked, who just touched me? Because he felt the spirit drain out of him. Meaning, Jesus wasn't even, in his, in his deity, I believe he's fully aware of what's going on. But in his humanity, he puts part of his deity aside in certain circumstances and operates within his humanity. And in his humanity, he goes, I just, I don't know who touched me, but I felt the Spirit pour out of me. Which means when Jesus does work in his humanity, he's exhausting the Holy Spirit. And that is why 
When you read Mark, the word immediately is repeated all over Scripture because Jesus is immediately going from one thing to the next. And half the time, we're told that in his immediacy, he retreats to be with the Father. He goes off to be alone with the Father. And to the point where the apostles come and say, Jesus, you need bread and water. He goes, bread and water? I don't need bread and water. That's food. That's physical sustenance. I need my Father. That, that is life. And then he gets filled with the Spirit when he does what? Communes with the Father. His communion with his Father is how Jesus gets filled up with the Spirit so he can go back into ministry and preach and heal and cast out demons and do all kinds of amazing things. And as he does it, the Spirit drains out of him and he goes, oh, time out. And the apostle's like, oh, you need bread and water? He's like, bread and water. No, I need to commune with my Father. That's life. That's the difference. So the answer to the question, how do I get filled with the Spirit, is communion with God. Devoted time with God develops intimacy with God, which produces greater and deeper affections for God. Meaning the more you fall in love with Jesus, the more you are filled with the Spirit. And the more you are filled with the Spirit, the more you will obey God's Word. So it all starts with falling deeper into affections with Jesus and for Jesus, which requires that you spend more and more time with Him. That's the solution. That's how you obey God's word. Stop living life like a karma person or like a legalist or like a Pharisee. Your life of obedience is not a checklist. You don't just figure out all the things the Bible tells me to do and then every day try to check them off because if you live that way, what you're going to realize is you have a lot more red marks than black ones. And you're going to get really depressed and you're going to start feeling bad about yourself and you're going to start feeling like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. Well, it's partially true because of your sinful nature. But, but the reality is God doesn't want you to think that way. He wants you to look at yourself and say, I am a wretched sinner without him, but by the grace of God, I have received Jesus and I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I was made for God and like God and in the likeness of God and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I was made in beauty and in righteousness. I'm sorry, I was remade in beauty and righteousness and holiness and purity and in perfection. And I want to live that out. And if you're focused on the, the, the obstacle, which is sin, that's the only thing you're going to see. So instead of we focus on the objective, which is genuinely Jesus and the righteousness that he gives us. So stop thinking about obedience as this checklist. Let's get away from legalism. If you do the checklist thing, you're going to be super depressed. You're going to become incredibly insecure with yourself because you'll realize I'm a terrible person and other people must see how terrible I am. And now I don't want to show my face in public. And you're going to start beating yourself up and doing a lot of bad self-talk in your head. And you're going to get super anxious and depressed and worried and scared. And that is not the life of someone who has Jesus in their hearts. life of an obedient believer is the life of someone who loves Jesus. Amen. So suddenly, Jesus' statement in John 14, 15, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. It makes a lot of sense as to why he suddenly starts talking about having the Holy Spirit. Because you will obey God's word when you love Jesus more. Because you can only love Jesus more in the Spirit. So, the answer to how do I obey God's word is to get rid of the checklist, get rid of the idea of karma, get rid of the idea of I just, I have to obey God and when I don't, I just feel stupid and bad and start living in the love of Jesus. Stop trying to be good and start loving your God. He is the object of all of your affections. He's the purpose of all humanity. He's the reason we exist. The list of obedience is not the reason you live. He takes that list, crumples it up, and throws it away and says, stop thinking about the list and start thinking about me. And start living for me and looking at me and reading about me and coming to me and praying to me and hearing from me and talking about me and thinking about me and develop your affections for me. That's what he wants. You. He wants you. He wants your relationship. He wants your heart. He desires your soul and your mind, not just your actions, because what we just read in 1 Samuel is your actions don't mean anything. God doesn't desire following the law or doing all the right things. He doesn't desire the burnt offerings or the sacrifices. He wants obedience, which is to love him. What did Jesus say the greatest command was? Love God. That's what we should obey. That's the only box on our checklist. Love God. And he's like, if you do that, I will pour my spirit into you and you will be filled with me and I will manifest me through my spirit out of you and you will obey me and I will be the one causing it. And as you focus on me and you are looking up to me and you are obeying me and you're following my word and you're loving me and your affections are growing for me, I am going to make you better. And we're like, no, I'll just try it on my own. I got a list, God. Last week, I got like two of them right. I mean, we are more legalistic than you think. And God's like, forget the law. There's a reason Jesus died. You don't have to live by law anymore. Now the law is in the spirit. The law of the spirit of God has freed us from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, 2. So the Spirit allows us, the Spirit works in us to obey God. So the question is, the practical question is this, this is it. We're done after this. I want you to think about how much time you commune with God. How much time do you spend with God? How much time do you spend with God in prayer? How much time do you spend with God in his word? How much time do you spend? You can lie to the, your family. You can lie to your friends or your pastor or anyone else in the church. You can't lie to God. He knows exactly how much time you spend with him. Okay, I'm not trying to make you feel bad about how much time you don't spend with him. I want us to be real. You know, you know how much time you spend. Now I want you to think, what does God want from me? You spend once a week you pray and read your Bible? How often does God want? What does he want from you? What's next for you? Is it three times a week? Is it every day? Maybe you already do it every day. What else does he want from you? What more communion could you have? Because that was the only thing Jesus cared about. He wasn't concerned about lunch. He was concerned about communion with his father. So what's that next step for you? That's what you need to think about. You need to be honest with yourself. This is how much time I spend with God. Okay, reality check and heart check. 
God wants more. What's me, what does me giving God more look like? Because if we do, and we commune more, we'll be filled with the Spirit. And if you're like, oh, I read my Bible and pray every morning, I bet by 2 o'clock you're pretty drained. You need to be refilled. You need to commune with God again. And if you're like, I pray or read my Bible once a week, I'm going to guess you got a lot of issues going on. I mean, reality, I, I mean, you're, you're probably, life is probably harder than it should be for you. And not because you're suffering for doing good. But because you're not communing with God, you're not filled with the Spirit, and obedience is insanely difficult. Oh, wait, no. Obedience is impossible without the Holy Spirit. So my challenge to you is, what's your next step in communion with God? So that in communion with God, your affections and love for Jesus grow. And as your affections and love for Jesus grow, you are filled with the Spirit and the Spirit obeys through you. Let's pray. Lord, you're too good for us. And yet you are so gracious to us. Thank you and we love you and pray that you would cause our obedience. In Jesus' name.